morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. What great truths we've already heard and sung this morning. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I hope that truth will sink into our hearts and resonate with us all week long. And then what we just heard as well, soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Friends, what glorious truths and what great reminders that is for us. Well, as we think about that our sins are many, I want to ask you the question this morning. When was the last time a Christian friend sat down with you concerned about a sin in your life? When was the last time a Christian friend sat down with you concerned about a sin in your life? Now, I'm not asking the last time someone let you have it. I'm not asking you about the last time someone yelled at you or got angry, got impatient with you, or exploded at you, or accused you of wrong. But the last time a Christian friend, in love and genuine concern and humility, had a tough but loving conversation with you because they wanted God's best for you, and they were worried about the effects of a sin in your life. Has it ever happened? When was the last time that you sought out to do that with a friend? Because the reality is that's pretty rare in the church today. Should that be the norm? Or should that be the exception? Our text today in Ephesians chapter 5 is going to give us some direction on this issue of what do we do when we see sin in the lives of other believers. Once so you find Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bible or on your Bible app, as you're looking at what we are in Ephesians, and if you're visiting today as we're going through our journey in Ephesians, we spend a good bit of time in chapters 1 through 3, which is our identity in Christ. There's not any commands in there. It's all about what Christ has done for us, seeing the glory of Christ and how he has changed us, how he's given us a new identity, all because of his work. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we're in the midst of right now, we're seeing how we now live out that identity, how because he's changed me, because he's changed my nature, how is my life different because of that? And the pattern for how we live out our new identity has been seen in kind of a twofold way in Ephesians 4 and 5. The first part is we put off something. We get rid of things, not in our strength, but by God's grace. We put off those things that are not consistent with our new identity in Christ. And we've seen a lot of the put-off commands, haven't we? We've seen that we're to put off things like lust and sexual impurities. We're to put off stealing and selfishness, bitterness, sinful anger, slander, lying, coarse jesting. We can go on and on. Paul makes it very abundantly clear that if we're in Christ, we have a new identity, and that new identity should reflect in what we do not do. We see a glimpse of that and a reminder, a summary of all that today in Ephesians chapter 5. Go ahead and look at verse 11 as you think about all we've seen him putting off over the last few months. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, "...take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness." Here's the put-off. It's a summary of all the put-off commands that we have seen. Take no part. Now let any of this characterize you. Your lives should not be able to be described by what? By the unfruitful works of darkness. Darkness being evil or sin. Why should our lives be different? Why should we, by God's grace, be putting off all those things? Because God has made us different. Look back at verses 7 and 8 that we looked at just two weeks ago. Paul says, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Remember from two weeks back, our nature was darkness. Not that we were in darkness, but our nature was darkness. We were evil. We were filled with sin throughout. Just like we sung, our sins, they are many. Every part of our life was corrupted by sin. But God in his mercy, verse 8, has now made us light. Not just he took us and put us in the light. He made us light. He changed our nature to now be Light. He's taken out the darkness and put light in us. And now he calls us to live as children of life. The imagery of chapter 4, to walk worthy by putting off those simple behaviors. But as we've seen throughout chapter 4 and 5, it's not enough to just stop sinning. It's not just enough to put off 
those wrong behaviors. We're to put on something else. To walk worthy means not just putting off, it's putting on and looking more and more like Christ. And likewise, we've seen a lot of put-on commands, a lot of what he calls us to start doing. To be patient, to be forgiving, to work hard, to be generous, to encourage one another, to have speech that builds up, to speak the truth. And again, we can go on and on just from chapters 4 and 5 of what putting on Christ-likeness looks like. As we come to today's text, he began with verse 11 with the put-off, but he's going to give us a put-on. What are we to do? What does Christ-likeness look like? What does it look like to walk worthy? If we are a child of God and our nature is now light, what does God call us and give us the grace to do? So as we read our text this morning, I want you to be looking for what are we called to do now. If we are now having a nature of light because of what God has done for us, what are we to do? So we're going to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful, Lord, for your incredible love for us, that you would take us who were not just in darkness, but darkness, and put your light in us and change our natures. Lord, what a glorious truth that we can never achieve on our own, but it's all your grace and your work. God, I pray this day that you would help us treasure who we are in Christ and what you've done for us. So I pray that you would challenge us this day from your word to see what you are calling us to do and giving us grace to do, even if it's not what we've ever done before, even if it's something that makes us nervous or uncomfortable. God, you give grace for us to walk worthy of the calling that you've given to us. So give us much grace today as we wrestle with a difficult text and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I want you to see one idea from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 to 14 this morning. It's simply this. We have a responsibility lovingly to help each other overcome sin. We have a responsibility, friends. If our nature has been changed from darkness to life, what follows is not optional. These put-on commands are not just for, like, super spiritual Christians. They're not just for the missionaries or the pastors. This is for all of us. If God has taken out the darkness and changed us to light, this is now the path that he calls us to walk down. And that is to help each other overcome sin, to live in community and to help each other. But notice that key word, to lovingly help each other overcome sin. We have a responsibility to do that. Now, friends, this is incredibly rare in any church today. This is incredibly rare to see it done. If you see it done, it's rare to see it done well or in a loving way. Because it's, it's so rarely modeled for us, I want us to tackle what this looks like with a series of five questions this morning. So hang on, this is not our normal approach to sermon. We're going to do five questions this morning to help us think through how do we lovingly help each other overcome sin. What I want us to see is, first of all, what are we to do? What is the command? Second of all, why are we to do it? That's one been to me one of the great things of going through Ephesians. There's so much of the why answers that are told to us. Why do we put off? Why do we put on? Why is our speech so important? There's been so much of the why issues that Paul addresses for us. So what are we to do? Why are we to do it? What is our standard? What is our goal? And how do we approach it? And so I hope as we walk through those five things, it will give us some clarity from these several verses here of what it looks like to lovingly help each other overcome sin. Let's start with the first question. What, in fact, are we supposed to do if we are children of God? Go back to verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That's the put off. Now here comes the put on, the command. But instead, 
expose them. Expose them. What's the them? The works of darkness. What is works of darkness? Sin. We have a God-given responsibility to expose sin. Where are we supposed to expose that sin? In the lives of other believers. Now, let me just say up front for clarity, there are some people who love the Lord and love the Word of God who think this text is about evangelism. They think this is about us exposing the sin in non-believers' lives to point them to the gospel. If you think that, we can still be friends. It's okay. We can still get along well. I don't agree with that, that interpretation of this because everything of Ephesians 5 is not an evangelistic mandate to take the gospel. It's all about how we live in community. It's about how we build each other up and love, how we be the church. And so this is in the midst of a flow of thought that's all about together corporately living out our identity in Christ. So I'm persuaded this is all about how we as believers relate. Just know there's a few people out there who, again, love the Lord, who, who see this as an evangelistic thrust instead. I'm persuaded, though, that this is about us helping each other see sin. Look at verse 13 here of this text this morning. When anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Visible to whom? To the other believer. When we're concerned about someone and sin in their life, we're supposed to expose it. We're supposed to make each other's sin visible to each other. We have a responsibility to help each other see the sin of our hearts. For instance, it's not the only place in Scripture that we see this command. In fact, the, the back here in the verse we were just looking at, that we're supposed to expose it, the Greek word for expose is the word elegeko. It means to expose, to bring to the light. That same word is actually used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. This is a very classic text about what sometimes we call church discipline. And Jesus used the exact same word that Paul uses here. And look at Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go in elegeko, tell him. Exposed. For some reason, they translate it tell in Matthew, but they translate the exact same word as exposed here in Ephesians. Go in elegeko. Go and expose to him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Christ directly commands for us to do this, to expose sin in each other's life. That's not the only place in Scripture you find this command. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, you see it as well. Him, that's Christ, we proclaim. Notice this next word, warning everyone. What do we warn each other about? We warn each other about sin and the dangers of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. And we teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our goal is to help each other mature, so we warn each other about sin. You see it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Now, this is a specific command that's given to Timothy, young Timothy from Paul, but it shows us what it looks like to minister to one another. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Notice these next few words, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What Paul tells Timothy is, yeah, this is not going to be what the fun part of what you want to do, but you have a God-given responsibility with the Word of God to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort other believers. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, written to all of us, you see the same thing. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, just a big word for sin there, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So from Jesus to Paul throughout the epistles, you see this expectation that followers of Christ are going to be helping one another by exposing sin, by bringing to the light sin in our lives so that we can grow from that. We have a responsibility to help each other overcome sin. That's the what. Now the second question, why? Why are we to do this? I want to give you two reasons why it's important for us to do this. The first reason is simple. We saw it two weeks ago. We all are easily deceived. We need to be helping each other overcome sin because we all are easily deceived by sin. Look back in verses 5 and 6 that we looked at two weeks ago. For you may be sure of this, 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance at the kingdom of Christ and God. Then verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So remember from that that message a few weeks back, verse 5 is a warning to us about being deceived in our own hearts by sin. Verse 6 is a warning about being deceived by other people. We can be deceived by our own thoughts and our own emotions. We can be deceived by other people as well. Look at how Hebrews 3.13 describes this very same thing that we've seen. Exhort one another every day. How often? Every day. This is to be the norm for the Christian life. We're to be exhorting one another every day. As long as this is called today, here's why. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, the reality is every single one of us, no matter how long you follow Christ, no matter how mature you are, we all struggle with being deceived by the sin of our own hearts and by others. And so we're called to help each other. So the first reason why we need to do this, we're easily deceived. Second reason is we all have a call to love one another. We're called to love one another. Friends, after the service day, if you saw a child running out into Bell Road in a car coming, you're not going to stand by and be like, man, he made the choice, it's okay. You're going to love the kid enough to run out there and try to stop the kid from being hit. It's not loving if you see someone in danger and you don't speak about it. Friends, we've seen throughout Ephesians the danger of sin and the danger of the deceitfulness of sin. We don't love someone if we see them going down a path of sin that will wreck their lives and take them far from the Lord and we don't say anything. We're called to love and help each other. So much of Ephesians, the first several chapters, was all about our corporate identity, that we're one body and we're to be working to build each other up. Look at how Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16 describe our responsibility to one another. Rather... Speaking the truth in love. Now, this is what we saw. That's sharing the gospel in love with one another. That includes what we're seeing today. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. We have a God-given responsibility to love each other enough to help each other grow. And so that includes warning each other about the deceitfulness of sin. So the what? We're to lovingly help each other overcome sin. The why? Because we're all easily deceived. Because we have a calling from God to love each other and to help each other. The third question, what is our standard? If we're going to help each other overcome, overcome sin, there has to be some standard we use. What is the standard? Now, this is, friends, where so often well-meaning believers go astray. Look back at verse 13 here. When anything is exposed by your opinions, now, when anything is exposed by your preferences, was anything exposed by your wisdom? No, when anything is exposed by what? The light. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. We are called to lovingly confront and expose sin with the light. What is the light? Psalm 119, 105 gives us a very clear answer. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or Psalm 119, 130 tells us as well, the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. And friends, again, Scripture doesn't hold up a high view of how great we are. It doesn't tell us we're great. It tells us we're simple. We're easily deceived. We're like sheep who are easily going astray. So what do we need? Not each other's opinions, not each other's preferences, not each other's wisdom. We need the unfolding of God's words. To give light, because that is what will guard us from being simple-minded and running after sin. And then Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, I love how it describes it. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline 
are the way of life. Friends, we need the light of God's word to be the standard that we use. So go back to Ephesians 5, 13 with that in view. When anything is exposed by the light, by the word of God, it becomes visible. And we said earlier it was becoming visible to the person who's struggling with the sin. Friends, verse 13 here in the Greek, the word the light is is written in such a way as an emphatic position. It's emphasized. It's almost like Paul is shouting in this. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. He's put it in almost today in bold italics, underlined. He's using the emphatic to stress what we expose with. And that's not ourselves, our views, but by the light and the light alone. Friends, unless we can show someone from Scripture how they're sending a Scripture to find sin, we shouldn't be trying to expose, correct, confront, or change them. Our standard is the Word of God. Yet, friends, so often in all of our hearts, we are so quick to want to share our preferences with one another. We're so quick to want to get other people to conform to our ways of doing things. And we're so slow to hold up the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. So the what? We're to lovingly help each other overcome sin. Why? Because we're easily deceived and we have a calling to help each other. The standard we're to use is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. I want to ask for the fourth thing I want to see for this. What is our goal? What are we trying to accomplish? When we talk to a brother or sister in Christ about sin in their life, what are we hoping to see accomplished? Again, this is so important to keep us on the right path. What is the end goal? We'll look at verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now just pause there. This should take us back to echoes of what we've seen in recent weeks. Anything that is visible is light. It doesn't say it becomes light. It says it is light. So look back up at verse number 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. If we're talking with a believer, God has already changed their nature from darkness to light. God already sees them as holy because they're covered with Christ's righteousness, not because of anything they've done, because of what God has done for them. They already have a new nature. And so our goal is to help them now walk worthy so their lives give glory to God. Our end goal is not them. Our end goal is not us or trying to serve ourselves or feel good about ourselves. Our goal is to help them see how God can be glorified in their lives. That's really what the next part of verse 14 is all about. If your Bible is like mine, this is indented and got a quotation mark around it. It says, therefore it says, and here's the quote, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, usually when you see this, you see it's a quotation back to an Old Testament text. That doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, there's places in the Old Testament you have these ideas, but this is not anywhere in the Old Testament. Most of the scholars think that this is actually an early Christian hymn. This is something that would have been sung in the early church. So think about something. The songs that actually leads us in singing, and that our praise team lead us in singing week by week. There's two types of songs, and this has been throughout all of church history. There's songs that we sing directly to God, where we're proclaiming to Him how worthy He is and how excellent He is. There's also songs that we've sung that we sing to one another to remind us of who God is and what He has done. And both are appropriate and both have been done throughout all of church history. This will be a second one of those. This is not a song that we're singing directly to God, though it's about God. It's a song we're singing as a church. The early church was singing this to one another to remind them of what God had done for them. It says, Awake, O sleeper. Well, sleep is different images at this time, but one of the images was being spiritually unaware. The believers were singing to one another, awake, don't be dense to what God is doing. Don't be dense to your new nature in Christ. Don't miss God's glorious. Awake, O one another. Awake, O sleepers, and arise from the dead. To arise is to call someone to vigilance. He's, 
He's saying, remember, God has already changed you. You're no longer dead. You are now new in Christ. Wake up to your identity in Christ. Wake up to what God has already done for you. And as you do that, as you return to realizing what God has done, notice the last line, Christ will shine on you. What does that mean? That was a common image to refer to Christ-empowering presence. That as you turn your focus back to Jesus as a believer, He will shine on you. He will give you His presence. He will give you new strength, new power. Perhaps the terminology we use here the most is He will give you grace upon grace. Christ shining on you is Him giving you grace upon grace upon grace to live out this new identity in Christ. So with all that in view, this little hymn that the church sang in the early church, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, Christ will shine on you, is a call and is a reminder that when we seek to help people change, our goal is not for them to change in their own strength. We're not trying to get people to have white-knuckled determination, just come on, pull through this, you can do this. This is not a pep talk of self-help. This is saying, no, no, wake back up, brother or sister, to who you are in Christ. Wake up that you have, he's already changed nature to light, and as you do that, He will pour out His grace. Look to Him for strength. But friends, this also is a reminder for us. Our goal is not to get the person dependent upon us. And depending on our spiritual gifts, some of us can have more of a tendency to like it when people are dependent upon us and need to meet with us over and over and over to find help. Our goal is not for people to be dependent upon us to walk with God. The goal is for them to see that Christ will shine on them and to find God's grace to change them. The goal is for God to be glorified as He does the work as He convicts them of sin from His Word, as He gives them grace upon grace, as He shines upon them to change them. So what? We have a responsibility to help each other overcome sin. Why? Because we're easily deceived and we have a calling to help each other. What's our standard? The Word of God alone. And our goal is for God to be glorified as the other person experiences God's grace and conviction and God's grace to change and to live out their new identity in Christ. That leads to one final question. How in the world do we do this? The practical part. What does this actually look like? And this sounds all well and good that we have a responsibility to lovingly help each other and we're going to use God's word to do this and we're going to be loving in the process. What in the world does this actually look like in real life? I want to give you six different principles to kind of help guide us through what this can look like in our daily lives. Because again, this is rarely modeled. This is Most of us have probably struggled to see this done and perhaps have had it done wrongly towards us or even done it wrongly to other people. How do we live out this command. Six things I want to give you to help us think through this. Number one, we strive to do this in the context of encouraging relationships. First of all, we strive to do this in the context of encouraging relationships. Friend, this command is not isolated. This command to confront sin is part of a big picture of how we as brothers and sisters relate in community. And part of what we've seen throughout Ephesians is that we have a calling to be building one another up in our words, to be loving one another, to be Seeing God work through us as we speak the truth in love. There's so much about speech. We say more about speech than any other type of Christian living in throughout Ephesians. Because Paul's concerned about how we live in community. We cannot take this command of confronting sin and put it in isolation with the commands to speak the truth, to encourage one another, to build one another up. The assumption here is that this is a furthering of the command of how we're already living together. How we already are in community. How we are encouraging one another. So the foundation, even before this, is what 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 describes for us. Paul says, being affectionately desirous of you. Now, this is terminology. He's not just see you from a distance and decide you have sin in your life and says so he's going to let you have it. Being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. 
Paul can give very strong correction because it's in the context of him with a heart that longs for these people to be in relationship with them, to know them, to see God work in their lives because the people become very dear to him. That means this command to confront sin is in the context of what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 as well. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Because I want to caution us if we should be very careful about running to confront sin in someone's life and we've taken no time to encourage them, build them up, even get to know them. Yes, we have a command to confront sin, but it's part of a big picture command of living in community, encouraging and building one another up. So first of all, we strive to do this in the context of encouraging relationships. Number two, we begin with prayer. We start there. I know that sounds so simple, but it's, I think a lot of times we forget that. Think of how Paul began Ephesians chapter 1. He has all these commands. So Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is our identity in Christ. 4, 5, and 6, Paul tells us how we're to live because of that. But notice where he started. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 to 18 was a beautiful text for us. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he goes on, the prayer doesn't stop there, but notice at the very beginning of this letter, the foundation is Paul is praying for them. He loves them so much. He's, first that's what he's doing, so desirous for them that his natural outflow is to pray for them. All the teaching commands, everything else come out of a life of a man who's covering these people with prayer. As I've heard it said before, we should not talk to people about God until we've talked to God about those people. I think there's some truth to that. How quick we are to run, try to help someone, teach someone, when so often we spend so little time interceding to the only one who can change them. We need to start with prayer. Number three, so first of all, we start with the context of encouraging relationships. We begin with prayer. Number three, our conversations must start with the person we're concerned about. Our conversations must start with the person we're concerned about. Friends, so often in the church... We don't begin by going to the person who we think is in sin. What do we do? We start criticizing. We start talking, did you hear what so-and-so did? And we cloak it in spiritual terms. I've got a prayer request. It's confidential. Don't tell me. Did you know that last night I saw, and you start filling in the blanks, and we start these gossip prayer chains when we've never gone to talk to the person. That's not the pattern of Scripture. We looked at Matthew 18 earlier, but Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, Christ very clearly gives us the path we're to follow. In verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and start a prayer chain and tell everyone else in a small group. No, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him, what's the next word? Alone. We don't go tell it to the church. We don't go tell it to his friends. We don't go post it on Facebook or Instagram. We go to the person we're concerned about. And can I just say, we go to them and ask questions because we don't know all that's happening. We go sit down and say, brother or sister, I'm concerned about you. Is this what's going on? Can you help me understand? Let's talk about it. We go and we ask questions and we talk to him. So... Verse 15 again, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now verse 16, if he does not listen, now start the gossip prayer chain. Nope. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The whole point of this is a redemptive process that Christ laid out. If someone has sin in their life, Our first obligation is to pray to God because only God can change them. Then we're to go to that person privately and say, I'm concerned about you, let's talk about it. And then if that doesn't work, you can then grab a deacon or an elder or someone else from the church to come along with you to be involved to help. And only then does it go more public. 
So we begin in the context as much as possible doing this in encouraging relationships that we already have. We start with prayer. We begin the conversations privately. Number four, we speak to them with gentleness and patience. And that's why I want to ask you at the beginning, has anyone ever tried to help you? I qualified that. Not did they yell at you, let you have it, get angry at you, friends. We go to them with gentleness and patience. Notice what we saw earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. This is what Paul's telling Timothy. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and let them have it. No, with complete patience. Complete patience. Yes, you're going to have to reprove. Yes, you're going to have to rebuke. Yes, you're going to have to exhort people. Because we're all easily deceived. But do so with complete patience. I'm like, oh, Paul, why did you have to add the word complete patience? Can I have a little impatience, a little frustration with him, a little kind of let him have it? No. We have to do it with complete patience. We already saw it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This one's even stronger for us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, not just the big ones, friends, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, what's the next word? Oh, ouch. We have to restore in a spirit of gentleness. And any sin, no matter what they've done, big or small, not that it matters to the Lord, but whatever the sin is, we have an obligation to confront it, but with gentleness, friends. Friends, can I say that if exposing sin involves yelling or raising our voices, it's not from God? Parents, if exposing sin in the lives of our kids involves yelling or screaming, it's not from the Lord. Husbands and wives, if trying to help our spouse with their sin problem involves yelling or screaming, friends, it is not of the Lord. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, we already saw this different things we were to put off, and one of those was clamor. Remember, clamor means yelling or screaming, and Paul's already told us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, yelling, screaming, to be put away from us. Because we have a responsibility to help each other overcome sin, but it has to be done lovingly, with gentleness, with patience, with calm voices. If it's not done with loving, gentle, patient, calm voices, friends, it is not of the Lord. So we start in the context of encouraging relationships. We begin with prayer. We go to the person privately. And when we talk to them with questions, we do so with gentleness and patience. Number five, friends, we approach it with humility as ones who need help ourselves also. We approach it with humility as one who needs help also. Back in Matthew chapter 7, there's a verse that gets quoted out of context, which happens a lot with Scripture these days, it seems like, but it gets quoted out of context a lot. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Friend, Matthew 7, 5 is not saying we can't help other people take the speck out of their eyes. That's not what it's forbidding. It's condemning the pride of our hearts that wants to see ourselves as better than others. and wants to see ourselves as having it figured out, and they don't. That's what it's condemning here. We can, friends, talk to others about their sins if we do it with humility as ones that we fail striving for holiness ourselves, willing to be held to the same standard and willing to let people help us in the process as well. In fact, if we follow Matthew 7, 5, and we find God's grace to let his light shine on us, and as Christ shines on us, we find grace to take those big logs of sin out of our own eyes, now we find much more grace and humility to help the person who's struggling with the speck in their eye. And friends, the reality is this is a two-way street. If I help you overcome some sin... In a few months, maybe in a few days, I'm going to need you to help me overcome some sin. And what's so ironic is sometimes the very sin I'm trying to help you overcome is going to be the very thing I'm going to be struggling with a few months later. I'm going to need you to help me overcome with. This is a two-way street. If we're going to help others overcome sin, we have to open ourselves up and be vulnerable and invite others to come help us as well and to point us to God's grace. So we start in the context of encouraging relationships. We begin with prayer. 
We go to the person privately. We use gentle patience in how we deal with them. And we approach it with humility, knowing that we ourselves don't have it all figured out, that we need a lot of grace also. And finally, we referenced earlier, number six, we hold up the word of God as a standard for both them and for us. We hold up the word of God as a standard for both them and for us. Second Timothy 3.16 is a beautiful text that reminds us about the power of the word of God and what it is. All scripture, this is our lamp, our light we saw, all scripture is breathed out by God. Friends, this is the reason why scripture and scripture alone is the lamp. My opinions are not the breath of God. My preferences are not the breath of God. My wisdom is not the breath of God. But scripture, the lamp unto our feet, all of Genesis to Revelation is breathed out by God. It's the very voice of God. And therefore, it is profitable. It's good for what? For teaching, but for reproof and for correction. It's good for that. God breathed out and has given it as a gift to us, a grace gift to us, so that we can not only use it as a light into our own soul that we might overcome sin, but that we can use it in humility and love to help others overcome sin as well. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, friends, what do we do? How do we live out this command of Ephesians 5? We seek to be establishing encouraging relationships. We pray for the person we're concerned about. We go to the person privately before we talk to anyone else about it. We approach them with gentleness and patience. We have humility in our hearts, knowing that we need help just like they need help. And we hold up the word of God as our standard and theirs as well. Friends, we have a responsibility lovingly to help each other overcome sin. I want to raise two questions before we close. Has there been a time in your life someone has tried to do this biblically and correctly? When they've come to you or to me with patience and gentleness and calmness and they were concerned about us and they were asking questions and we rebuked them, we pushed them back, we held them at arm's length because we didn't want them to shine the light of the Word of God into our lives. Because if we kept someone away who was trying to help us, we sinned in that process. That means we need to go seek their forgiveness. If someone has, in God's grace, God put there to talk to us about sin in our life and we rejected it, friends, we need to contact that person and seek their forgiveness. The second of all, friends, is there someone that you know who's living in sin, a brother or sister who claims the name of Christ, and you know that they need to be challenged with gentleness and patience and humility with the Word of God? If someone comes to mind, that's your responsibility. It's not the job of the deacons and the elders and the staff here to do that. It's the job of all of us. If we claim the name of Christ and we're living in community, we have a God-given responsibility with gentleness and humility to help one another overcome sin. Perhaps there's someone that you know that you need to speak to who claims the name of Christ, but they're in living in the bondage of some sin. You have a God-given responsibility to help them. But remember, it's, we need to start with prayer. Perhaps that's where we've been falling short. We haven't even taken time to pause and to regularly pray for that person. Perhaps we haven't been seeking to build an encouraging relationship with them. Can I just suggest that we start there this week? We begin to fervently start praying for that person. And who knows, God may already start changing him this week. Prayer is powerful before you even have to open your mouth. But we pray for them, and we seek to encourage them. We seek to get to know them. We seek to hear from them what's going on in their life so that we have open doors to bring the Word of God to light in it. And if so, I just want to cha- challenge you, even as we're standing to sing in just a moment. As we're singing, would you just pause from singing for a minute and just talk to the Lord about that person he puts on your heart, asking for much grace and wisdom to know how to pursue them. Friends, we have a responsibility as children of light to lovingly help each other overcome sin. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word, even for the parts of your word that stretch us and make us uncomfortable and call us to do things that in our own flesh we really don't want to do, Lord. But God, you're good. God, your word is good, and your commands are good. And Lord, I am so thankful that you love each one of us as your children so much 
you don't want to leave us deceived by sin. God, you have given us your word to show us the path of righteousness. God, you have given us your Holy Spirit who convicts us and prods us when we are rebelling against you. But God, you've also given us the grace gift of community. We have brothers and sisters who you've put here to intercede for one another, to speak the truth in love to one another. God, would you give us much grace to grow in this area? I know in my heart so often there's so many people-pleasing tendencies that will fear what people will think. Will they get angry? Will they be upset if I say that? Lord, would you give us much grace to fear you more than we fear what other people think? To love you so much, God, that we're willing to obey you without fear of how it'll be received. But Lord, that we'll seek to approach things the way that you would approach things. Or we can't do that in our own strength. But God, you give grace and you give us your Holy Spirit. So I pray right now for myself and each of these precious brothers and sisters. Or if there's someone you've put in our life, Father, who we know is not walking worthy of their calling, who's struggling with the sin in their life, God, would you begin to today burden our heart to pray for them? Not to look on with judgment on them or look down at them or criticize them or gossip or slander, all those things you've already told us not to do. But God, to begin to intercede and to spend hours praying for you, the God of grace, to pour out your grace and to change them and to convict them and to pursue them so they can find the joy that can only come from walking with you, Lord. God, would you even now begin to prompt each of our hearts for people we need to begin to pray for? God, would you begin to prompt our hearts as well for people this week we need to seek to build a relationship with, not to go let them have it because of where they are, but God, to go take to lunch or breakfast or have to our house or share a meal with or just call and say I'm praying for you just to let them know we care and to seek to establish those relations where the truth of the word of God can be brought to light or perhaps we're already in some of those relationships and we know we need to have that difficult conversation God would you if we're in those situations prompt us this week of who that is and how to go about doing it and I pray God that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that all the things of where the flesh can so easily get in and corrupt and ruin all this and be driven away by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if any of those conversations need to happen among the people of Gateway this week, your Holy Spirit would so fill us and so be present in those meetings that the enemy would have no grounds to create division or anger or walls, but rather just in much humility and brokenness that people who've been estranged will come back together. People who've been bound or trapped by some sin will find freedom, Lord, not because we're the ones to speak, but because your word and your Holy Spirit change. And Lord, we get to be your mouthpieces. So God, give us much grace for this. We cannot do this in our own strength. And if we try in our own strength, we're going to wreck a lot of things and a lot of relationships. So Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us much grace to understand what you want us to do and how to do it. Help us be found faithful each step of the way so that you get all the glory that the brother or sister we're worried about gets built up and glorifies you and we get the joy of seeing you work and being a tiny little mouthpiece for you and your sovereign plans. And we'll give you all the praise. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?